Welcome everyone to what promises to be a very exciting and thought-provoking evening. And as Danae mentioned, one of the great values and traditions of the university is free and scholarly discussion of important issues, an environment that promotes tolerance and inquiry. And there's perhaps no more compelling issue that we can talk about rather than our question tonight, does God exist? Now I encourage you to consider the arguments of both debaters that are presenting tonight. Remember that no matter what opinion that you have, it's your responsibility, it's my responsibility as a moderator to ensure that our environment is one of courtesy for opposing alternatives. Applause is welcome for points well made, heckling won't be allowed. And I'd be notified that there are some friends from the football team um, who will kindly but firmly escort anyone who is wanting to be belligerent. And the moderator was also a lineman for the Huskies, so. <laughs> Debates contribute to the educational experience offered by our university community. community, so please be considerate and respectful as you participate in the debate. So no inappropriate jeering for name calling, please. Now, the classic format of this debate gives each presenter 20 minutes to make his initial argument for or against the question. The theist, Dr. William Craig, will present his case first. Then the debater taking the atheist position, Dr. George Williamson, will present his 20-minute arguments. Now, the second part of the debate format is the rebuttals. Each debater will have 12 minutes to probe the weaknesses in the opponent's, in the opponent's argument, as well as to reaffirm his own thesis as the more convincing case. The rebuttals are followed by a brief segment of questioning and dialogue that promises to be very dynamic, in which each debater will have seven minutes to ask questions pertaining to his opponent's thesis. Each of our esteemed scholars will have six minutes to make their closing statements. You will then be given a brief opportunity to cast your votes and write your opinions on a comment card under the guidance of our Master of Ceremonies. Finally, I'm going to moderate a 20 to 30 minute time allowing question and answer session in which you'll have an opportunity to ask questions of each debater, of either debater. A microphone will be provided at the front and you can ask a question of the debater what you choose. Now, to ensure that we finish on time, we have an official timer to which each of the debaters have been introduced and they've been agreed to abide by the time cards that will be presented. And when the stops are shined, when the stop sign is shown, the speaker will stop. And now, uh, let's hear from Dr. Craig, who will be giving a 20-minute argument in the affirmative to the question, does God exist? Thank you, Truett, and good evening. I'm delighted to be back at the USF, uh, U of S after three years. Uh, George and I have actually debated before, and so I think I can confidently say that we're in for uh, an enlightening and I think entertaining evening this evening. I also want to thank uh, Campus for Christ for inviting me to participate in the debate again this year. Now in tonight's debate, I'm going to defend two basic contentions. First, that there are good reasons to think that theism, that is the view that God exists, is true. And secondly, that there are not comparably good reasons to think that atheism, that is the view that God does not exist, is true. 
Now, I'll leave it up to Dr. Williamson to present the arguments for atheism before I respond to them. In his opening speech, rather, I want to sketch briefly six reasons that weigh in favor of God's existence. As a professional philosopher, I believe that the uh, hypothesis that God exists makes sense of a wide range of the data of human experience, including philosophical, scientific, moral, historical, and existential considerations. Number one, then, God is the best explanation why anything at all exists. This is the deepest question of philosophy. Why is there anything at all? Experience teaches that, one, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in its own nature or in an external cause. You see, anything that exists is one of either two types. The first type is something that exists necessarily by its own nature. Examples? Well, many mathematicians think that numbers and other mathematical objects exist in this way. If such entities exist, they just exist necessarily, without any cause of their being. The other type is anything that has an external cause of its existence. Examples? Mountains, galaxies, planets, people. They have causes outside themselves that explain why they exist. Now, it's obvious that, too, the universe exists. Whereby the universe, I mean all of space-time reality, not just our observable portion of it. It therefore follows from one and two that the universe has an explanation of its existence. But what sort of explanation is it? Well, it seems plausible that three, if the universe has an explanation of its existence, that explanation is an external, transcendent, personal cause. Why? Because the cause must be greater than the universe. Think of the universe, all of space and time. So the cause of the universe must be beyond space and time. Therefore, it cannot be material or physical. Now, there are only two kinds of things that fit that description. Either abstract objects, like numbers, or else an unembodied mind or consciousness. But abstract objects don't stand in causal relations. The number seven, for example, has no effect on anything. Therefore, it follows that four, the explanation of the universe is an external, transcendent, personal cause, which is what everybody means by God. Number two, God is the best explanation of the origin of the universe. Have you ever asked yourself where the universe came from? Typically, atheists have said that the universe is just eternal and uncaused, and that's all. But there are good reasons, both philosophically and scientifically, to doubt that this is the case. Philosophically, the idea of an infinite past seems absurd. Just think about it. If the universe never had a beginning, that means that the number of past events in the history of the universe is infinite. 
But mathematicians recognize that the existence of an actually infinite number of things leads to self-contradictions. For example, what is infinity minus infinity? Well, mathematically, you get self-contradictory answers. This shows that infinity is just an idea in your mind, not something that exists in reality. But that entails that since past events are not just ideas, but are real, the number of past events must be finite. Therefore, the series of past events can't just go back and back forever. Rather, the universe must have begun to exist. This purely philosophical conclusion has been confirmed by remarkable discoveries in astronomy and astrophysics. We now have pretty strong evidence that the universe is not eternal in the past, but had an absolute beginning about 14 billion years ago in a cataclysmic event known as the Big Bang. And what makes the Big Bang so startling is that it represents the origin of the universe from literally nothing. For on the standard model, all matter and energy, even physical time and space themselves, come into being at the moment of the Big Bang. Now, of course, alternative theories have been crafted over the years to try to avoid this absolute beginning. But none of these theories has succeeded in restoring an eternal past. At the very most, they just managed to push back the beginning to an earlier step. The physicist PCW Davies concludes, the coming into being of the universe is not just a matter of imposing some sort of organization upon a previous incoherent state, but literally the coming into being of all physical things from nothing. But then the inevitable question arises, why? Why did the universe come into being 14 billion years ago? What brought the universe into existence? Well, unless you're willing to say that the universe just popped into being uncaused out of absolutely nothing, there must be a transcendent cause beyond space and time which created the universe. Thus, from one, everything that begins to exist has a cause, and two, the universe began to exist, it follows logically that three, therefore, the universe has a cause. Now, as the cause of space and time, this cause must be an uncaused, timeless, spaceless, immaterial being of unfathomable power. But the only thing that can fit that description, as we've seen, is an unembodied mind. And thus we are brought not merely to a transcendent cause of the universe, but to its personal creator. Number three. God is the best explanation of the fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life. In recent decades, scientists have been stunned by the discovery that the initial conditions of the Big Bang were fine-tuned for the existence of intelligent life with a precision and delicacy that literally defy human comprehension. 
This fine-tuning is of two sorts. First, when the laws of nature are expressed as mathematical equations, you find appearing in them certain constants, like the gravitational constant. These constants are not determined by the laws of nature. Second, in addition, there are certain arbitrary quantities which are just put in as initial conditions on which the laws of nature operate. For example, the amount of entropy or the balance between matter and antimatter in the early universe. Now, all of these constants and quantities fall into an extraordinarily narrow range of life-permitting values. Were these constants or quantities to be altered by less than a hair's breadth, the life-permitting balance would be destroyed and life would not exist anywhere in the cosmos. We now know that life-prohibiting universes are incomprehensibly more probable than any life-permitting universe like ours. Now, there are only three possible explanations of this remarkable fine-tuning. Either physical necessity, chance, or design. Now, it can't be due to physical necessity, because as we've seen, the values of these constants and quantities are independent of the laws of nature. So, maybe the fine-tuning is due to chance. After all, highly improbable events happen every day. But what serves to distinguish purely chance events from design is not simply enormously high improbability, but also the presence of an independently given pattern to which the event conforms. For example, in the movie Contact, scientists are able to distinguish a signal from outer space from random noise, not just by its high improbability, but by its conforming to the pattern of the prime numbers. The fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life exhibits just that combination of incomprehensible improbability and an independently given pattern that are the earmarks of design. Hence, we have good reason to think that, too, it is not due to either physical necessity or chance, from which it follows logically three, therefore, it is due to design. Thus, the fine-tuning of the universe implies the existence of a designer of the cosmos. Four, God is the best explanation for the existence of objective moral values and duties in the world. If God does not exist, then objective moral values and duties do not exist. Now, by objective values, it's important to understand that I mean values which are valid and binding, independent of whether anybody believes in them or not. Many atheists and theists alike agree that if God does not exist, then moral values and duties are not objective in that sense. For example, Michael Roos, an agnostic philosopher of science, explains... Morality is a biological adaptation, no less than our hands and feet and teeth, considered as a rationally justifiable set of claims about an objective something. Ethics is illusory, 
Morality is just an aid to survival and reproduction, and any deeper meaning is illusory. On a naturalistic, atheistic view, moral values are just a byproduct of biological evolution and social conditioning. Just as a troop of baboons exhibit cooperative and even self-sacrificial behavior because natural selection has determined it to be advantageous in the struggle for survival, so their primate cousins, homo sapiens, exhibit similar behavior for exactly the same reason. As a result of socio-biological pressures, there is evolved among homo sapiens a sort of herd morality which functions well in the perpetuation of our species. But on the atheistic view, there doesn't seem to be anything to make this morality objectively binding and true. But the problem is that two objective values and duties do exist. In moral experience, we apprehend a realm of objective moral values and duties that impose themselves upon us. There's no more reason to deny the objective reality of moral values than the objective reality of the physical world. Actions like rape, cruelty, child abuse, and intolerance aren't just socially unacceptable behavior. They're moral abominations. Michael Roos himself admits in another context, the man who says it is morally acceptable to rape little children is just as mistaken as the man who says two plus two equals five. Some things, at least, are really wrong. But then it follows logically and inescapably that three, therefore, God exists. Some people think that the evil in the world disproves God. I think the exact opposite is true. Real evil in the world serves to prove the existence of God, since without God to ground objective moral values, good and evil as such would not exist. Five, God is the best explanation of the historical facts concerning the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, was a remarkable individual. Historians have reached something of a consensus that Jesus came on the scene with an unprecedented sense of divine authority, the authority to stand and speak in God's place. He claimed that in himself the kingdom of God had come, and his visible demonstrations of this fact he carried out a ministry of miracles and exorcisms. But the supreme confirmation of his claim was his resurrection from the dead. If Jesus really did rise from the dead, then it would seem that we have a divine miracle on our hands, and thus evidence for the existence of God. Now, most people would probably think that the resurrection of Jesus is something you just believe in, by faith or not. But actually, there are three facts which are recognized by the majority of historians today, which I believe are best explained by the resurrection of Jesus. Fact number one, on the Sunday after his crucifixion, Jesus' tomb was found empty by a group of his women followers. According to Jakob Kramer, an Austrian specialist, by far most scholars hold firmly to the reliability 
of the biblical statements about the empty tomb. Fact number two, on separate occasions, different individuals and groups of people saw appearances of Jesus alive after his death. According to the prominent New Testament critic, Gerald Ludemann, it may be taken as historically certain that the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. These appearances were witnessed not only by believers, but also by unbelievers, skeptics, and even enemies. Fact number three, the original disciples suddenly came to believe in the resurrection of Jesus despite having every predisposition to the contrary. Jews had no belief in a defeated and dying Messiah, and Jewish beliefs about the afterlife precluded anyone's rising from the dead to glory and immortality before the end of the world. Nevertheless, the original disciples came to believe so strongly that God had raised Jesus from the dead that they were willing to die for the truth of that belief. N.T. Wright, an eminent New Testament scholar, concludes, that is why, as a historian, I cannot explain the rise of early Christianity unless Jesus rose again, leaving an empty tomb behind him. Attempts to explain away these three great facts, like the disciples stole the body or Jesus wasn't really dead, have been universally rejected by contemporary scholarship. The simple fact is that there just is no plausible naturalistic explanation of these facts. And therefore, it seems to me that Christian is amply justified in believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. But that entails that God exists. Finally, number six, God can be personally known and experienced. This isn't really an argument for God's existence. Rather, it's the claim that you can know that God exists wholly apart from arguments, simply by personally experiencing him. This was the way that people in the Bible knew God. As Professor John Hick explains, God was known to them as a dynamic will, interacting with their own wills, a sheer given reality, as inescapably to be reckoned with as destructive storm and life-giving sunshine. To them, God was not an idea adopted by the mind, but an experienced reality which gave significance to their lives. Now, if this is the case, then there's a danger that arguments for God could actually distract our attention from God himself. If you're sincerely seeking God, God will make his existence evident to you. The Bible promises, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. We mustn't so concentrate on the external proofs that we fail to hear the inner voice of God speaking to our own hearts. For those who listen, God becomes a personal reality in their lives. So, in conclusion then, we've seen six good reasons to think that God exists. If Dr. Williamson wants us to believe that God does not exist, then he must first tear down all six of the reasons I presented and then in their place build a case of his own to prove that God does not exist. Unless, and until he does that, I think that the belief in God is the more plausible worldview.
Now, now, I trust you're not going to do that. It would be a complete waste of time unless you've got some reason to think fairies might exist anyway. So, in other words, is it credible to ask you to disprove the, or you disprove the existence of fairies simply because someone else happens to hold the position that they exist? And, and you're obliged to do this simply to not believe in fairies. Okay, now but there's a phrase you've probably heard here, and it's this. So what about this idea that the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence? Now that might apply in some circumstances, but let me point out something to you. There's an alternate case, and that is that the absence of evidence that should be there actually does prove that that proved to be evidence of absence. Now what I'm thinking about is the fact that any good hypothesis about the world should give us some reason to think that the world is different in some respect. So the world with God in it should be different in some detectable way from the world without God. So the real question behind the burden of proof issue is whether or not theism is actually a substantive hypothesis at all. Now, what we need to see is whether or not there actually is any kind of difference between these two worlds, the world with God and the world without God. Now, I'd suggest to you that there's a common course that people recognize in disputing about God, and that is that we start out with a bold hypothesis that there is a substantial difference between the world with God and the, and the world without God. But this, in the course of meeting objections, is often whittled down to simply a claim that the world actually looks the way it does because God did it somehow. So in other words, a, a bold claim about the nature of reality gets whittled down to essentially nothing. Okay, now I'd like to give you two basic points for the atheist case. One follows straight out of the discussion of the burden of proof that I just gave you, and that is, does the world show any definitive sign of God's presence? Now I think I'd like to argue ultimately through at least one of the arguments I'm going to give you here, and through my objections to Dr. Craig's case, that essentially there is no real definitive difference that, God, that can be detected to demonstrate that God exists. Now that's an empirical case. Now I'm not going to give you, for the most part, um, nice little deductive arguments like Dr. Craig has. And that's because, as far as I can see, deductive arguments actually only tell you what your assumptions are in the first place. They're a way of expanding and discovering parts of your assumptions that maybe weren't obvious in the first instance. In other words, I don't think we actually learn anything new about the world as a result of deductive argument. Now, my other case would be would be the, the idea that God is an incoherent concept. And this will be a conceptual case. And it's there that I'd like to start first. Now, coherence is the idea of things holding together. So a claim of incoherence in a concept is essentially simply the claim that things in that concept don't hold together logically. Now, the problem is 
that as a, if we can find an incoherence in God's in the concept of God, this will either prove that God does not exist, cannot exist, or that it's unclear exactly what it would mean to claim he exists. How do we understand this claim? So let me run you through some standard claims about the incoherence of the concept of God. Consider first that God's attributes are essentially negations of substantial ideas. In the first place, God being all power, essentially powerful essentially means only that God is powerful without limit. So he's not this strong, he's not that strong, he's powerful in some way that has no limits that would allow us to define it. The same goes for all knowing. Uh, all knowing. His knowledge is without limit, and being all good is good without limit. He's also non-spatial. He's not confined to any point in space or into any area of space. He's also material. He can't be located as one of the objects in this room, for example. And he's internal in being not limited in time. Now, once you've taken all of the limits off of these substantive concepts, you're left with a concept that is essentially indistinguishable from nothing. God, after he's defined this way, is essentially equivalent to nothing. Now let me go on to suggest that there's some incoherence between some of the attributes that is given to God. So we're looking at contradictory qualities. Qualities that can't exist together. Omniscience is perfect knowledge. Now let me give you some examples of problems with God knowing all. For example, can God make a slap shot? Can God know how to make a slap shot? Now what do you need in order to know how to make a slap shot? Well, you need a body, don't you? You need to be able to exist in space in order to do that. So this is going to conflict with God being corporeal. God can also not know the feeling of lust. That would require knowledge of emotions. And of course God and of course, God is morally perfect, so he doesn't experience these limitations. Uh, God also, can God, God know fear or despair? Well, what could make God fear? What could make God despair? Of course, the problem is God's all-powerful, so he has no reason whatsoever to, to fear or despair over anything. Okay. Um, to knowledge, 
if I can know all these things, and I'm believing I'm incredibly good. So why isn't this legitimate knowledge? Now, the sum here is that claiming that God is omniscient and conflicts with his corporea, incorporeality is more perfection and is omnipotence. So that should indicate that God is in fact an impossible object or something that cannot exist. Let me try another version of this. It's said that God has created beings with free will, and he's done this out of his omnipotence, perhaps. Well, let's consider this. Can God create a free being? Well, let's take the alternatives. Either he can or he can't. If yes, there's something God can't control. If no, there's something God can't do. So either way, God is not omnipotent if, well, if he can or if he can't create a free being. Okay, come on back, come on back. Okay, so the typical response to this claim is that God can control free beings, but he chooses not to because we have to go out there and act on our own, enter into free relationships with him, and act morally. We need freedom to act morally. Now, that instead conflicts with his omnibenevolence. Since after all, if there's an evil will out there, God is all good, why would, an, why would an all-good being not want to control an evil will? Well, if God chooses freedom with evil over perfect goodness, then clearly he has other objectives besides what is perfectly good. So he cannot be considered all-knowing. Or sorry, all-good, all that is. Now the second argument I want to give you, and this is more in the empirical line that should suggest that the world does not in fact look like it has a God in it. That's the problem of suffering, and this is also known as the problem of evil. Now God's attributes tend to conflict with the idea that evil exists, since of course if God's all-powerful, there's something he can do about evil. If he's all, all, all good, there's something he should want to do about evil, and of course if he's all-knowing, uh, he knows what to do about evil. Nevertheless, it's pretty clear that unnecessary suffering exists out there. Now, I'm making some assumptions in order to get a contradiction out of these ideas. One would be that omnipotence requires God to do everything except for logical impossibilities. That is, there are all kinds of physical impossibilities that human beings can't accomplish, but these can't bind God. His omnibenevolence seems to me to suggest that he should seek to eliminate evil wherever he can as far as is possible. Now, if you ask, if you take a look at me, once again, this limited being with only a tiny little bit of goodness, uh, I'm nevertheless obliged to deal with all the evil that I possibly can. So why would this be a bad assumption to expect of God, the moral arbiter of the cosmos? Oops, oh, and just a qualification, we have two kinds of evil, one being natural evil, um, disasters, uh, disease, etc., like that, and moral evil, or that done by free agents. Now, there's typically two solutions to the problem of evil that people favor, since they seem to be regarded as the most successful. I'd like to indicate how they're not exactly very successful. Uh, for, one is called the soul-making theodicy. 
And the idea here is that God must allow natural evil in order to encourage the development of moral qualities, such as, for example, compassion. Compassion is something that moves us to try and eliminate evil so far as it's possible. And, of course, you need some evil in order to inspire this. So the general form of this is that a world without evil and a world with evil and no compassion, and on the other hand, compassion, we have two different choices here. The world without evil and no compassion is good, but the world with evil and compassion is considered to be a better world, and therefore the one God would create. Now, there's some problems with this idea. One is simply that moral qualities without evil is only a practical impossibility and not something God could, couldn't do. God can do better than that. Now, how much evil do you suppose is, is necessary to create moral, moral qualities? Well, I reckon it's a good deal less than what we can see around us. And it also happens to be a fact that evil also tends to create indifference, callousness, and despair. Now finally, let me point out something to you. Is a world with evil and moral qualities in it really better? Well, consider this. What's the value of compassion? Well, as I've suggested, it's plausible to think that compassion is something that helps us or moves us to minimize suffering. Now, in other words here, compassion presupposes evil. In other words, compassion would have no value in a world with no evil. And therefore, the world with evil, uh, sorry, without evil and without the moral qualities would be the better world, in fact, because, as a matter of fact, without evil, moral uh, compassion, for example, would have no value. So that wouldn't be a worse world. Now, there's the free will theodicy, and I guess I'm going to have to hurry up a bit here. Um, typically, the idea here is that God must allow moral evil as a creation of creating free beings. And, of course, you recognize free will requires potential to create for good and bad choices, or good and evil choices. And free will is necessary for persons to exist, since supposedly we need free will to become moral beings and enter into relationships and that sort of thing. So the general form here is, again, that the world with free will in it and evil is going to be the better choice, and therefore that's what God ought to be doing. Now, I think there's some problems once again. Now, is it really true, oh sorry, is a being that freely makes all good choices really a logical impossibility? Well, what about God? Because I have this quaint idea that God might well be an all-good being, making all good choices, and also free because he's a moral being. Now, what is it going to be then? If, these, if free will is logically inconsistent with all good choices, is it true that God doesn't make all good choices, or is it true that God's not free? Once again, we have a contradiction. Now, what is the point of moral development? Let's imagine this. Everybody here should be trying to make as many good choices as possible. Um, say you're at 50% good choices right now, and you struggle your way up to get to 70% good choices. Now you struggle your way up further to get better and better, and when you get to 99% good choices, you're still choosing freely to make these good choices. But here's the catch. 
When you tip up, if there's a logical contradiction between making all good choices and having a free will, when you tip over from 99 to 100% good choices, all of a sudden you're no longer free and no longer a moral being. Well, that makes no sense of uh, the idea that we can develop morally if the ultimate goal is actually a logical contradiction. And finally, free will only requires the potential for free choices, for evil choices, not necessarily the actuality. So God could then create potential for free choices and have moral beings because of that, but have them never actually choose evil. Uh, let me see where I can go in 30 seconds. Uh, let me just skip over this. I want to give you one final thought here. I think there's a reason in typical theology why the problem of, of evil is not um, is not solvable, and that is the existence of hell in some theologies. Hell presupposes an eternal suffering, and that would be something that no one could merit in any life, however bad, any finite life. So hell essentially is a crime against humanity. I guess I'm done. Thank you, Dr. Williamson. So we've heard the opening arguments for and against the question, does God exist? Now the second formal section of this debate is the rebuttals. Now during this section, each of the debaters will have a 12-minute portion to um, take apart their, uh, the other debater's case and to strengthen the uh, hypothesis of their own arguments. So, um, to uh, begin the rebuttals, uh, please welcome back to the podium. It's true. Now, since Dr. Williamson did not respond to any of my arguments in his opening speech, the format of this debate is such that I'm not going to have a chance to respond to his criticisms. Uh, if he brings them up in the next speech, because I don't have another speech until my closing statement. Uh, but we still await what those responses will be. My second contention was that there are not comparably good reasons for atheism. And here Dr. Williamson says, well, atheism is not a view. It is not the view that God does not exist. Atheism is a psychological state of lacking belief in God, and therefore it's neither true nor false. Now, I'm not interested in quibbling about terms. Uh, whether you call it atheism or schmatheism uh, doesn't matter to me. Uh, it doesn't make any difference. Let's agree tonight to let George use the word atheism to describe the lack of belief in God, his psychological state. We're not here tonight to debate George's psychological state. Rather, we're here to debate the arguments for and against the existence of God. So let's call the view that God does not exist schmatheism. And the question I'm asking is, are there any good reasons to think that schmatheism is true, that God does not exist? Well, I heard three arguments that Dr. Williamson gave in his last speech. First, that the absence of evidence for God is evidence of God's absence. Now, the problem here is that absence of evidence isn't necessarily uh, evidence of absence. For example, many cosmologists think the universe went through an early era of inflationary expansion. 
But there's no evidence for that yet. Does that therefore mean that no such era existed? You better not tell that to a contemporary cosmologist. Or suppose gold hasn't been found yet on the planet Mars. Does the fact that we have no evidence of gold on Mars support the statement that there is no gold on Mars? Obviously not. So the question is, when does the absence of evidence count as evidence that something does not exist? Well, theorists of knowledge agree that the lack of evidence for some entity X counts as evidence against X's existence only in the case that if X did exist, then we should expect to see more evidence of X's existence than what we do see. For example, the evidence, or the lack of evidence for fairies is a very good reason to think fairies do not exist, because if there really were biological organisms of that size flitting about, biologists would be very interested in examining their corpses, people would find their little houses and so forth, so the absence of evidence for fairies is a good reason to think they don't exist. Now, apply this to the existence of God. The absence of evidence for God's existence counts as evidence against God only in the case that if God did exist, we should expect to see more evidence of his existence than what we do see. And in practical terms, what that means is that if God exists, should we expect to see more evidence than the origin of the universe out of nothing, the exquisite fine-tuning of the universe for intelligent life, the apprehension of an objective realm of moral values and duties, the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth from the dead, and the immediate experience of personal fellowship with God? And I think the answer is obviously not. There is no basis for thinking that if God existed, we should expect to see more evidence than that. So to carry his argument, Dr. Williamson has to prove that it's highly probable that if God exists, we should have more evidence of his existence than that which we have, and I submit that's sheer speculation, sheer conjecture on his part. His second argument, though, was that the concept of God is incoherent. For example, God is said to be all-knowing, and that just means that he knows everything without limit. Well, that's incorrect. No theologian defines God's omniscience, meaning that it's without limit. On the contrary, there are limits to what God knows. What omniscience means is that for any proposition P, if P is true, then God believes P and does not believe not P. That is to say, God knows only and all truths. But he doesn't know falsehoods. He doesn't necessarily have all non-propositional knowledge. So it's not true to say God is just a negative being equivalent to nothing. God is a personal, concrete object of enormous power and intelligence who has created the world and is the source and locus of objective moral value. Now, Dr. Williamson says that the attribute of omniscience is incoherent because God can't know how to make a slap shot. But again, here he's confounded propositional knowledge, which God has, with non-propositional knowledge, how-to knowledge, which God doesn't necessarily need to have. The traditional attribute of omniscience is defined in terms of God knowing all and only true propositions. But obviously, God doesn't have the non-propositional knowledge, for example, that uh, I am Napoleon. Napoleon has that non-propositional knowledge, but God doesn't. It would be an imperfection for God to have such knowledge. Now, Dr. Williamson realizes this distinction and says, 
Well, but why shouldn't he have all non-propositional knowledge? Simply because non-propositional knowledge is neither true nor false. This is knowledge like how to ride a bicycle or make a slap shot. It is neither true nor false. What God knows is all true propositions about making a slap shot. That it is executed in a certain way. That one must move one's arms and legs in a certain way. And certainly God does know that. Now, Dr. Williamson says God cannot be all-powerful because then he can't create a free being. No, uh, what omnipotence means is the ability to do any or actualize any logically possible state of affairs that someone can actualize. And it is logically impossible to make someone freely do something. So this isn't an infringement on omniscience. It's, it's as impossible as making a square circle or a married bachelor. Again, Dr. Williamson realizes this and says, but then what about all the evil that God permits in the world? Well, I would say God has morally sufficient reasons for permitting the evil that we see in the world. And that segues nicely into his third objection, the problem of evil. But notice that we've not seen any incoherence in theism uh, contrary to his allegation. So what about the problem of evil? Well, notice that Dr. Williamson is making two critical assumptions, neither of which I think is necessarily true. First, he assumes that if God is all-powerful, he can create any possible world that he wants. And that's simply not true. If God wills to create free creatures, then he cannot guarantee that they'll always do what is right. It is logically impossible to make someone freely do something. So God's being all-powerful doesn't mean that he can do the logically impossible. So what Dr. Williamson needs to prove is that there is a world of free creatures which God could create, which has as much good as this world, including the future, mind you, but without this much evil. And how could he possibly prove such a thing? Again, it would just be sheer speculation. The second assumption that he makes is that if God is all good, he would want to create a world without evil. And again, that's just not necessarily true. Now, certainly God wants the best for us. But what is the best? Well, I think we just tend to assume that God's purpose is to make us happy in this life. But on the Christian view of God, at least, that's false. The purpose of life is not worldly happiness, but rather the knowledge of God and eternal life, which is an infinite good. And many evils happen in this life which may serve no purpose whatsoever with regard to bringing about worldly happiness, but they may not be pointless with respect to bringing about the knowledge of God. It is possible that only in a world that is suffused with natural and moral suffering that the optimum number of persons would freely come to know God, find his salvation, and so enjoy eternal life and incomparable good. So again, what would Dr. Williamson have to prove? He would have to prove that there is another possible world with this much knowledge of God and his salvation which could be produced with less evils, and that that world is feasible for God. Well, how could he possibly prove that? It's just sheer speculation. It's impossible to prove those sorts of things. And that's why, frankly, the logical version of the problem of evil, which he presented tonight, has been largely abandoned among contemporary philosophers. There's scarcely anyone who thinks anymore that the atheist can sustain the burden of proof 
of proving those two assumptions are necessarily true. Peter Van Inwagen, a very prominent contemporary uh, philosopher, has written, it used to be held that evil was incompatible with the existence of God, that no possible world contained both God and evil. So far as I am able to tell, this thesis is no longer defended. The burden of proof that the problem of evil would lay upon the atheist's shoulders is simply unsustainable. So, I don't think we've heard any good reasons tonight to think that Schmatheism is true. That is to say, to think that God does not exist. The absence of evidence is not necessarily evidence of absence. The concept of God as an omnipotent, an omniscient, an all-loving uh, being is perfectly coherent. And the problem of evil depends upon hidden assumptions which are simply not necessarily true. And for that reason, I think that the weight of the evidence lands strongly uh, on the side of the scales of the theistic position. He's exactly right. I should be proving the non-existence of God. Just as Dr. Craig, since he, if he buys his own view of the burden of proof, should be proving the non-existence of Vishnu and Allah and etc., etc. Well, we don't hear anything about those. So I, I'm not convinced that Dr. Craig even believes his own view of the burden of proof. Now let me uh, go into some of the things that he was saying about what I was suggesting. We've seen the whole argument about God's knowledge and what God can be expected to know. Dr. Craig insists that it's only propositional knowledge, things that can be true or false, that God is obliged to know. I'd have to suggest that if that is, as he says, the theologian's view, there is one motivation for that view, and that is that it escapes this concern. Now, take a look at what I've offered you as suggestions for why, for pieces of knowledge that we have and that perhaps God ought to be obliged to have. Well, what do you think? Is it genuine knowledge or is it not? I'd have to suggest it is. It's part of how we get around as knowing beings in our world. Now, Dr. Craig also suggests that God may well have morally sufficient reasons for allowing the evil that we see around us. Now, that's a curious remark because, you know, I thought the problem of evil was actually that we don't know God's reasons for allowing evil. And Dr. Craig is simply stating that they might be out there somewhere, but that's just the problem repackaged as if it's a solution, and it's not. Let me try taking a look at some of Dr. Craig's arguments in rebuttal there. By the way, in an opening speech, nobody criticizes arguments, so that's why I wasn't criticizing his arguments. That's just how the debate works. Let's take a look at the cosmological argument. Well, we're starting from the idea of a necessary existence. And Dr. Craig's first premise reads, everything that exists has an explanation of its existence, either in the necessity of its own nature or in an external clause. Now, I think I'd want to call baking the question on that premise because postulating a necessary existence is very close to actually postulating God in the first place. So essentially, in his premises, he's already put God into the picture, and if he can then derive a conclusion that God exists, well, that's no surprise. Now, I have to also have to go on and point out something about his intelligent minds. He insists that this creator must be personal, an intelligent mind. Well, what, how, how do you know your, what do you know about minds? 
Well, I'd have to suggest to you that you know them only from the terms that, in the terms you see around you. You only know minds that are instantiated in space and time. They're embodied in our bodies. So if now we're going to start talking about disembodied minds, well, I'd like to see some proof before that can work as an explanation of anything. I'd like to see some proof that there is such a thing. Now maybe Dr. Craig is defending dualism, which is a philosophical view that there is a mind as some kind of different thing from a physical body. That view, um, in, since Dr. Craig um, knows of a lot of views that nobody holds anymore, well, dualism is a view that no one holds anymore. It's fundamentally incoherent. How exactly does a non-spatial substance interact with a spatial substance? Well, it doesn't. So our minds must be physical one way or another. Now let's consider his next argument, the Kalam cosmological argument, the one that starts with everything that begins to exist as a cause. Now he suggested that the atheist is obliged to think that the universe must pop into existence out of nothing. But that's a straw man of anything any atheist thinks. Because, well, in the first place, there are complex questions in there that cosmologists need to be answering. And atheists are kind of dependent on cosmologists' knowledge. Now, well, what do the cosmologists have to say about this? Do they, are they as quite as definitive as Dr. Craig in saying that the universe has an absolute beginning in time? Well, I should point out, an absolute beginning is actually a metaphysical idea. Nothing a scientist could demonstrate could possibly demonstrate that that exists. Furthermore, quantum mechanics suggests that there is no such thing as empty space. In fact, empty space is, well, a staging area for part, spontaneous particle and antiparticle creation. They pop into existence. Now, I'd also want to go on and point out that the singularity, the idea of the singularity is what's being called the Big Bang here. The idea of the singularity is simply where our theories about things break down. In other words, that's where we have to throw up our hands and say we don't know. Now, Dr. Craig thinks it's acceptable to simply stuff God into that gap and say, here's an explanation. Well, I'm not skeptical. I, honestly, I think a better, a better position to take would be, say, with the cosmologists, we actually don't know what's going on there. And I think that's a good deal better than trying to explain things by, by God, because God is currently an unknown. God is an unknown, and if you're trying to explain things by the unknown, that gets things dead backwards. We usually explain things from the known to the unknown. But here, Dr. Craig is explaining the known by the unknown, and that's just backwards. Uh, the fine-tuning argument. This is quite an amazing one. I don't know how design gets onto the list of options. Remember, we've got some options. Physical necessity, chance, and design. Well, what do we know about design exactly? Well, in the first place, it's always done by human beings. We only know of instances of design that are done by human beings. Um, so our experience with that, it would indicate that, that whatever design is taking place is within a human context. Now, I want to... Oops, sorry, lost train of uh, yeah, so I, I guess the point I was just making was that it seems unlikely that design genuinely belongs on that list in the first place. Now, Dr. Craig has gone on to suggest that it's incomprehensibly low odds 
that the universe could appear as it does, requiring all those constants to be exactly as they needed to be. Well, inco incomprehensibility is not a property of chances, it's a property of minds. And all someone is saying is that they don't comprehend these odds. But I think Dr. Trey actually does comprehend those odds. He talks about how they're calculated, and he talks about how big they are. So that's simply not the case. Now, I think also, finally, the atheist can accept everything he said, pretty much, in the fine-tuning argument, because, you know, all it's saying is that on one assumption, the probabilities of the universe appearing exactly as we see it are greater. And that's the supposition that there is a fine-tuning creator god out there somewhere. And while, yes, of course, if there was one of those, then the odds are much better that the universe was created by one of those things, just as if there really are poltergeists, then those funny noises my house makes at night could well be more likely caused by poltergeists. Big deal. Now, the moral argument really sticks in my craw, I've got to tell you. In the first place, this premise, if God does not exist, objective values and duties do not exist, patent question B. This already connects morality and religion, and that is exactly what's in question. Is morality independent of religion, or is it not? Dr. Craig simply assumes it is, and goes from there. Well, once again, the conclusion cannot be that surprising. He also talks about animals having no morals. And I'd have to suggest to you, here's an experiential conclusion I've come to. Fact number one, we're animals. Jared Diamond suggests we're the third species of chimpanzee, and this is not even disputable. We share all kinds of physiological similarities. We share DNA with all the living things on the face of the earth. So it's indisputable that we're animals. Second, we have morals. We behave morally. We think about morals. We reason about morals and all that sort of thing. So I'd suggest to you that given that it's not disputable that we're animals, and it's not disputable that we're moral, I'd have to suggest to you that, in fact, there is at least one animal that is moral. All of the other things, like whether or not there's more to us than animals, than being simply animals, whether or not there's this funny spiritual stuff spouting out of our heads or wherever it comes out, whether or not God is responsible for the moral structure of the universe, all of these are much less certain than the fact that we're animals and we're moral. So in your experience, that should be your conclusion. Now, really, I really honestly can't say too much about, I'm not a theologian, I'm not a biblical scholar, so I don't have too much to say about his argument that the resurrection is somehow proved by history, except that that better be pretty good history, because if you're proving miracles by history, wow, what kind of evidence could you possibly need? Well, I don't know. I don't think that, given that history very often makes it difficult to figure out what people did on any given day or what they thought about anything, et cetera, I'm a little skeptical that miracles are genuinely provable by historical documents. And finally, I'm awfully glad that Dr. Craig admitted that that last argument from personal experience was not an argument. That spares me the trouble of doing that. But I'd also like to point out one thing, this idea that those who listen find God. Well, that's essentially saying that if you, you will find the evidence acceptable when you accept the evidence. That's circular reasoning again. Thank you.
time left, but I'm running out of further things to say. Um, well, yeah, I, I don't know. This, this idea that those with open hearts find God, um, that's, that's a really odd idea because it's basically just that you'll believe it when you see it argument that we got from all of the New Age people for the last 20 years. And that's, it's no better here. Somebody who's saying that is only saying, well, since you don't believe in the God I do, you must be a bad person. You must not have an open heart. Well, that's no kind of evidence. That's no kind of argument at all. I guess I better quit since 30 seconds isn't much time to think of anything else to say. <laughs>
Let me point out, once again, you're attempting to explain the known by the unknown. And I think we'd actually have to have something a bit better than just throwing God in there as if that explains something. All right, well, let's go on to the cosmological argument. Remember, this had two premises. Whatever begins to exist has a cause, and the universe began to exist. Now, I presented philosophical as well as scientific evidence for that crucial second premise. You didn't respond to any of the philosophical arguments for a beginning, did you? I don't think I did. Okay. So let's talk then about the scientific evidence. You said that an absolute beginning can't be proved scientifically. Now, if the universe did begin at a singularity, as is posited in the standard model, John Barrow and Frank Tipler, who are physicists, say, at the singularity, space and time came into existence. Literally nothing existed before the singularity. So if the universe originated at such a singularity, we would truly have a creation ex nihilo. Now, are they wrong as physicists to say that? Well, the point is they're physicists. Are they, are they philosophers? No, these are, these are physicists. One's from Tulane, the other's University of Sussex, when they wrote this book. Yeah, and I, I'm not convinced that when a, a physicist starts using philosophical concepts to describe what he knows of his own science, that that's a particularly good translation. Yes, I certainly agree with you on that. And the use of nothing in, in certain uh, pop, scientific popular works is often grossly misleading. In this case, however, a singularity forms a boundary to space and time, doesn't it? I mean, it's not just a place where the laws of physics break down. If it's real, it's a boundary point through which space and time are inextendable, isn't that right? Well, the whole question is, is it real? Yes, that's the, that's the question. So I was just dealing with your point that this is something that science can't speak to. It would seem to me that if we, if we did have evidence for a singular beginning, we would have evidence of an absolute beginning, if it's real. Well, yes, but the question still is if it's real. All right, so is it real? Now, um, you're aware, I'm sure, of various models like the famous no-boundary proposal by Stephen Hawking, which doesn't feature an initial singularity, but nevertheless involves an absolute beginning of time. The South Pole in his model represents the moment before which nothing exists. So you don't even need a singularity to be real in order to have an absolute beginning in a scientific model, it seems, do you? Yeah, I don't, I'm not familiar with Stephen Hawking's proposition there. Um, all right, well, I think that's all I had on that argument. Let me go to the fine-tuning argument. You asked, why should design even be long on the list? If you excluded George a priori from the list, then you're not even admitting design into the pool of explanatory options. Isn't that begging the question in favor of atheism, then? Shouldn't design at least be on the table? My suggestion was simply that design doesn't belong there because 
our only experience with design is not of universes. We only, we've only seen one universe. We haven't seen a God creating a universe. Our experience of, of all design is, is of human beings doing this job. So I don't think we have any particularly good reason to think that that is even a candidate for an explanation of well, the universe. Now, the reason I, I suggested was because physical necessity and chance are not uh, viable explanations of the fine-tuning that we observe, whereas if there is a cosmic designer, that would make the fine-tuning very probable. Wouldn't you agree that the probability of fine-tuning on theism is much, much higher than the probability of fine-tuning on naturalism. Exactly, and as I pointed out, all that says is that on the assumption of God, on the assumption there's a God that would want exactly the universe fine-tuned the way that we see it, then the probability is higher. Yes, but and that is to say that it can accept that, and, and it doesn't prove anything. And, well, and, and isn't that to say <laughs> Isn't that just to say, therefore, that the scientific evidence confirms the existence of God? That is what it means to say that the probability of fine-tuning is higher on theism than naturalism. The evidence confirms the existence of the designer. No, it's simply saying that if you make certain assumptions, probabilities go up and then they go down. And I believe time is now up. Clear 
that there are objective moral values and, and duties because they're more obvious than any of the, than, than the key premises in an argument for skepticism. Okay, but if we simply intuit these things, if we simply detect them by some power of our minds, um, what's the need to bring in God into this? Because it seems to me if human beings are doing the job in the first place, then, well, I don't know why God is necessary. Here, I think it is absolutely critical that we distinguish between moral ontology and moral epistemology. Moral ontology attempts to provide a foundation in reality for the values and duties that we have. Moral epistemology asks the question, how do we come to know our duties and our values? And I'm not suggesting that we need God in order to do moral epistemology. That's not my argument. Uh, my argument is that God serves in the, in the area of moral ontology to ground moral values in his nature and character and moral duties in his commandments. Okay. So the objectivity you're talking about in this argument is, I mean, effectively you're suggesting that there's an existence objectively of moral facts or something of that nature? Well, not in a platonic sense. Uh, if you mean the sort of platonic reality, but I, I think that it's, it's to affirm moral realism, yes, that there are moral truths and many of them, I think, are as necessarily true as the truths of mathematics and logic. Remember the quote from Michael Roos about raping a little child being like two plus two equals five. Uh, he equates there this moral truth with a, a proposition of mathematics. Okay. Um, now, I guess I'm still wondering about this problem of knowing our ethics. Because Dr. Horner thought I was confusing the two issues between um, metaphysical objectivity or ontology and epistemological objectivity. But the puzzle for me is, suppose there is objective moral facts out there somewhere in the cosmos written down in stone. If human beings have no way of knowing those, then it doesn't do us any good. No, we need some, some, some objective, uh, epistemologically objective access to those facts. Now, it seems to me that turns around being able to give and take reasons. We need something out there in the public that's accessible to all of us, and we need to give and take reasons about that. So how would you connect the more existence of moral facts to, to our knowledge of them? Well, I think if anything, the theist would enjoy an advantage here. He could say that God has equipped us with cognitive capacities to recognize the moral values and duties that there are. But I, I'm quite willing to work here with my secular moral uh, colleagues in developing a theory of moral epistemology, how we come to know the good and, and the ought. Um, if anything, the theist has an advantage in that he could also appeal to the resources of divine revelation uh, for areas, say, of moral ambiguity. But I'm, I'm open to any sort of moral theories about how we come to know the content of the good and our duties. Okay, but here's the puzzle for me. Um, if there are, if we are intuiting these things, then it seems to me either the intuition is epistemologically adequate to our knowledge or it's not. And if it's not, then, well, if we don't have the knowledge. If it is epistemologically adequate, then it seems to me it's going to have to be based in some objectivity that we can actually scrutinize. 
we're going to need to be able to find out the reasons for it. But the trouble is, if we are able to find out the reasons for why something is right and wrong, then it again seems like God is superfluous. Well, I don't think we will find out the, the reasons why something is right and wrong, independent of God, ultimately. You can find certainly subordinate reasons. For example, it's wrong to rape a child because it does harm to that child. It injures her. But then that just raises the further question, well, why is it wrong to cause injury or harm to someone? After all, this goes on all the time in the animal kingdom. Well, eventually, you've got to come to some explanatory stopping point, unless you're a moral nihilist. And I think that the most adequate explanatory stopping point would be found in God, his nature, and, and commandments. Well, I'd have to disagree there. Um, you described harm as, as a subordinate reason. Now, this is something I find disturbing about the theist position, because essentially you're saying that without God's God say so, harm wouldn't be an adequate reason. So in other words, you wouldn't accept harm as an adequate reason, and I would. necessarily 
If God is all-powerful, then he can create a world of free creatures in which this much good is achieved without this much knowledge of God and eternal life. And he needs to show us that if God is all good, then he would want to create a world without suffering and evil in it, uh, even though that would bring about less knowledge of God and less of his salvation. And that's just conjecture. So when you look at the debate, I don't think we've heard very good reasons tonight in favor of the position that God does not exist. Now, what about my arguments? First, the contingency argument. I think it became very clear during the dialogue time that I'm not begging the question of distinguishing necessary from contingent existence, and that this argument is a proof for the existence of an unembodied mind, because that's the only thing that could provide a metaphysically necessary explanation of the existence of the universe. As for the cosmological argument, again, during dialogue time, it became very evident that contemporary cosmologists are quite willing to speak of an absolute beginning of the universe, whether it be a singular or a non-singular beginning, and that uh, this represents a finite past in which the universe began to exist. Notice that the philosophical arguments for the beginning of the universe have never been disputed in tonight's debate. So even without the scientific evidence, premise two stands on the basis of the metaphysical arguments I gave. What about the fine-tuning argument? Again, during the dialogue time, it became clear that Dr. Williamson was just begging the question in excluding design from the pool of live explanatory options. Um, we can calculate these numbers, but when I said they're incomprehensible, I meant that they're too big to grasp. It's impossible for us to understand what one out of 10 to the 100 power means, which is the degree of fine-tuning of the gravitational constant, for example. And he admitted during the dialogue time that the probability of fine-tuning on theism is higher than it is on naturalism. And those of you who applauded this, boy, don't seem to understand that that just is to say that this is evidence from theism. That's what it means in probability theory to confirm a hypothesis, to show that that hypothesis is more probable on the evidence than it's contradictory. So I rest my case the fine-tuning argument goes through. What about the moral argument? Here, the key issue will be the need for an explanation of the existence of objective moral values. Shelley Kagan, who is an eminent ethicist at Yale University, says, this need for explanation in moral theory cannot be overemphasized. One of the things we want our moral theory to help us to understand is how there can even be a moral realm and what sort of objective status it has. Ultimately, unless we have a coherent explanation of our moral principles, we don't have a satisfactory ground for believing them to be true. And that is the dilemma that the atheist face. He, it's not that he has the wrong moral principles. Largely, he has them right. But he doesn't have any explanatory foundation for them. On naturalism, we're just relatively evolved primates, uh, as he says, third species of chimpanzee, and there's no reason that we should think we have objective moral value or any objective duties to fulfill. But if you agree with me that raping and torturing a little girl for fun is wrong, then you should agree with me that God exists. Without, without God. You can't ground them in naturalism, folks. 
But the resurrection of Jesus, he simply asked what sort of evidence would you need? Well, he needs some pretty good evidence. And isn't it remarkable that the majority of historians who have written on this subject agree with those three facts that I laid out? These are not the conclusions of conservatives. These are the conclusions of the majority of New Testament historians today. And I think it gives good grounds for believing that Jesus rose from the dead and was who he claimed to be. And therefore, number six, the personal experience of God. It's not an argument, but it's an invitation for you to begin to look for yourself, to explore, and to see if God could be real. I believe that you can find him as a living, personal reality in your life. I know because he changed my life in that way, and I believe he can change yours as well. Still just says, an incomprehensible probability still just says 
that we're having trouble appreciating it. It doesn't say anything about whether or not that is going to happen. And I think if you take a look around the universe, okay, how fine-tuned does this place look to you? Um, if it's fine-tuned to produce intelligent life, got lots of it, don't we, on Earth? Uh, how about the rest of the cosmos? Where exactly is it out there? So I'd have to suggest to you that the universe actually looks exactly as it would if it happened by extreme long odds chance. We got it one place, but it seems to be, as far as anyone can detect, nowhere else. Now back to this objective morality, needing an explanatory foundation. Uh, I want to put my cards on the table, because here, it seems to me that the fact that we all share a common physiology, we all share the same pains and suffering, should it be more likely to give us a grounds for saying that certain things are wrong because they cause us pain far better than God could possibly do. Now, if I were to bring in a chainsaw and offer to cut off any person's leg with this chainsaw, I trust nobody would be taking this. Now, what do you suppose that is? Is it because it's merely a subjective thing that we object to pain? No. It's perfectly objective because it's based in our physiology. And that seems to me a far more immediate way of assessing the objectivity of right and wrong than to reference God. And think about this. You'd have to prove God exists. I guess Dr. Craig did that. So, okay. Um, you'd have to know which God you're talking about. Did we get Allah or did we get God? Uh, or did Jehovah, whatever. We'd also have to know what revelation was the correct one. And we'd also have to know what interpretation of the revelation was correct. So if you have to go through all of that, rather than simply look at what causes harm, well, how is it easier to figure out what is right and wrong? Well, I'm going to go for harm any day. I don't much like reading Bible anyhow. Now, here's another reason to think that we should have objective morals, or at least have come agreement on them. Um, take a look at a society. Try and imagine an existing society, one that's stable and durable for any length of time, where they have no rules against uh, murdering children. How long is that society going to last? Not a generation. How about a Would anyone want to live in a society where there's no rule against murder? Anyone can walk up to you and gun you down. Well, I'm not going to even be part of that society. That's not going to function at all. How about a society in which you simply, there's no pro prohibition against lying? Well, Cooperation kind of depends on being able to trust each other, and if everybody's going to lie at will, then we're not going to be able to get along. So the simple fact that we have durable, stable societies suggests that there are some values that constitute these societies, and they're grounded in the simple fact that these societies exist. Nothing, need, nothing more need be said there. Now, for my last 15 seconds, I'd simply like to appeal to you. Oh, I guess, oh, she wrote a stop on it because I went too, too far last time. Okay. 